right. Good morning, Veritas. How are we doing? Good to see you all. Uh, if you don't know this about me, I have a lot of energy. So if you're not awake yet, you will be by the end of the morning. If we haven't met, my name is Jordan. I'm on staff as a college ministry pastor. And it is officially the start of another school year. Anybody excited about that? No. The kids are like, no. I am personally, because it means college students are back in our city. Uh, quick update from Salt Company. We currently have 210 college students in connection groups, which is insane. Absolutely insane. God is working on our campuses. Uh, yeah, we've, we've really built our ministry out specifically this year, looking at Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And we just, we acknowledge uh, the Lord is the one pressing it upon students' hearts to be looking for something more. And that more is found in Jesus Christ. We know that, but he is putting it on people's hearts to come and hear the word taught. We, we are thrilled. Uh, when I think about college students coming back, it, it brings me into this like transition period of life. You're thinking about all the freshmen that just moved their boxes into co-college, and they have no idea what's ahead of them, right? Uh, they kind of do, but they really don't. And I think about transitioning to college, and one of the most challenging things for me was the food scene, right? I, I showed up as a freshman at Simpson College, and what I didn't really recognize is I was leaving my mom's tremendous home cooking behind to settle for a cafeteria. And that was awful. I was like, man, I do not want to eat cafeteria food all the time. So uh, me and a few of my buddies would frequently hop in a car. We'd drive to Des Moines. I mean, we did this in Ames too. I ended up transferring to Iowa State. You don't want to eat cafeteria food, so you choose something easy. You go out for pizza. You grab fast food. Maybe you, you know, make a sandwich at home, get fancy, but I got sick of it. I got sick of it and eventually came to a spot where I was like, you know what? I'm getting a recipe. I'm going to make something homemade. And that never went well. Never went well. You're talking about a 19 or 20 year old boy at that point trying to make a homemade recipe. And I had no idea that cooking or baking was such a science. Like, not only do you have to have the right ingredients, weird, uh, you have to like mix things in the right order or like mix them at the right speed. And I would get this wrong in some way, shape, or form. Oftentimes it was because I hadn't planned. So I'm like halfway into making something and I realize, oh no, I don't have brown sugar. Well, I guess we'll find something else to mix it in. Uh, but I'm also fairly convinced that when my mom would send me a recipe, because it was great, because it was a secret recipe, there's also secret missing ingredients. Like, let's be real. That's the sign of every good cook. Is like, you don't, you don't show people your cards. So I would mix something together, and it would turn out not great. And then here's what I would do. I would, I would eat it, and I'd try to force myself to like it. Maybe you've done this before. You're like, yeah, not bad, right? And then you put it in the fridge. You come back to it like maybe one more time for leftovers. And you're like, okay, let's just face it. This is awful. Like, I can't do this again. And then you throw it in the trash. And maybe you noticed on a program this morning, the topic we're talking about today is prayers for the lost. And maybe you get an idea of where we're going with this. 
when you think about praying for lost people, people who are separated from God, people who have no hope apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. I mean, we're talking over three billion people across the world who have no access to Jesus. And not just that, we're talking about people in our city, in our communities, in our school systems. Much closer than that, people in our own families, our friend groups, who don't know Jesus, who are lost, spiritually blind. And unless God would give them the gift of faith and open their eyes to the reality of the gospel... They are not only suffering right now as a result of living in sin, they will suffer an eternal condemnation. And that should break our hearts. Like, as a Christian people, we should, we should want to pray for them. We should go to the only one, God, who has the power to save frequently for these people. But if we're honest with ourselves, praying for the lost ends up a lot like these leftovers. We try to get ourselves to like it because we know we should. Maybe we have worked really hard on it. But for whatever reason, it ends up in the trash. It It lacks the flavor or the depth, the vitality that we need to have a thriving prayer life when it comes to praying for lost people. And so the question we have to ask is, what are we getting wrong? Or maybe, what are the missing ingredients? If we want to have a thriving prayer life for the lost, what are the missing ingredients? So we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. If you have a physical Bible, we'd love for you to pull it out. We are hoping to answer this question today. What are the missing ingredients when it comes to having a thriving prayer life for praying for lost people? So the Gospel of Luke, Gospel means good news. Uh, Luke is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was a physician uh, turned disciple, and he has written this orderly account of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. I've told people before, the fact that we have the Gospel of Luke is a miracle, number one, because God's Word is inspired, but also, if a physician's handwriting can be legible enough to be translated, like, that is a miracle in and of itself. So, two miracles in one, we have the Gospel of Luke in front of us. Uh, We're picking up in chapter 10, so kind of middle of the book. And at this point, Jesus has performed many miracles. He's revealed himself actually to be the Messiah, God incarnate. And Peter has even identified, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is like, you're right. And in Luke 9, we see that Jesus at this point understands his time on earth is short. Luke 9 says Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem. He is now approaching his betrayal and his crucifixion. And he is now like beginning to mobilize his disciples. He's beginning to mobilize them to live on mission, to go and to preach and proclaim the good news. And so we pick up in verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. Here's what the Word of God says. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others... And sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So Jesus has 
72 men. He's, he's mobilizing them on mission. And before he sends them out, he's like, I have marching orders for you. I, I'm going to give you some instructions. Ellie and I have little boys who recently have figured out how to ride scooters. And it's a huge benefit to me because I don't have to push a double stroller anymore. They can just ride their scooters. We go along for a walk. But before we do this, we always put them on the sidewalk. And we have the three S's. Sidewalk. This is your boundary, right? Sidewalk. Stop at the road. Stop at the alleyway. Wait for mom and dad. And then the third. Stay away from puppies. Like, they just want to pet the dogs all the time. And I'm like... You don't want to pet that pit bull. Sorry. Right? So we give them the three rules, and then we get ready to walk. Jesus is about to do the same thing to his disciples. He's like, hey, I'm about to send you on mission. But before we do that, I want to lay some ground rules on how you can do great gospel ministry. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning just looking at one verse. This very next verse where Jesus says this. It says, and he, Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, maybe you don't know this, but uh, this verse, Luke 10-2, is actually part of the bedrock of this church existing. (laughs) Like, we belong to a network of churches that for the last five decades has kind of championed praying Luke 10-2. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, we're going to pray. We want to be a praying people that God would raise up more disciples and more church plants. More people that are willing to go out into the harvest. And I think it's amazing that we have built a ministry around a verse like Luke 10-2. You've maybe seen it on a t-shirt before. You've seen it on a bracelet before. I mean, it's in our prayer guide, right? Set your phone alarm to 1002. I think that's a good thing, but I think there's danger that can come with familiarity. There's danger that can come with familiarity. Maybe you've been out to Colorado before and you've seen the Rocky Mountains. And you've beheld it and you're like, this is incredible. Like, if I lived here, I would, I would sit on the porch every day and I would worship and I would praise God because look at his creation. It's so beautiful. I'd go hike 14ers all the time. And then you talk to people who live in Colorado and they're like, yeah, they're all right. It's like, what? What? You don't look at Mount Trashmore every day. Like, you don't understand the beauty of what's right in front of you. And I think the same is true with us as, as we just think about Luke ten two, a verse that might be familiar and maybe too familiar that we can miss the wonder of what Jesus is saying. And actually packed in this one verse, we have two ingredients that are here to help us have a thriving prayer life when it comes to praying for the lost. These were incredibly striking to me as I prepared for this message, and I hope that they can just spur you on as you try to pray more faithfully for lost people in your life. We're going to look at these two ingredients together. The first ingredient is this, that we need to have faith that God has many people that are ready to repent. God has many people that are ready to repent. Did you see that in the text? I mean, before Jesus gives any orders, he gives them a promise. Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. And maybe you're not super familiar with the Bible to understand that Jesus was not just talking about agriculture here. (laughs) He's using an agricultural analogy to a nation that's very familiar with farming to make a spiritual reality more tangible. He would frequently do this in his teaching. Maybe you're familiar with the parable of the sower. Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is kind of like this. A farmer goes out and he scatters seed. And he later explains that scattering seed is sharing the gospel. It's the word of God. And the soil is representative of people's hearts. There's different kinds of soil. People respond to the good news of Jesus in different ways. But he says, good soil, here's what it does. It bears much fruit, some 30, 60, 100 fold. And actually, Jesus uses this harvest language in John chapter 4. Maybe you've heard of the woman at the well before. It's right on the tail end of that story where Jesus shows up to a well thirsty. He sees this woman here getting her water all alone. And he speaks into her shame. He sees her in her sin. And he shows himself to be the Messiah. The one who can actually satisfy her. And this woman is undone, right? She leaves her water jar behind and runs into the city to tell everybody, come meet this man who's told me everything about myself. Could this be the Messiah? Meanwhile, Jesus is still hanging back by this well. His disciples have returned to him. They had gone into the city to get some food and and they come back to him and Jesus starts teaching them. Okay, John 4, verse 35, Jesus says to his disciples, do you not say There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The disciples had to be so confused. They're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Harvest is four months away. Because all they can see is the physical reality right in front of them. They're only thinking about farming as Jesus is talking about this harvest. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm not talking about a physical harvest. I'm talking about a spiritual reality, a spiritual harvest that's right in front of you. If you would just look up, have eyes to see people in the world the way God sees it. Don't you see that the fields are white for harvest? And right after this, here's what happens. John 4, verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The harvest is plentiful. Look at the gospel exploding in Samaria. That's what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to see. People are ready to repent. The gospel is good news, and not just good news, the best news on the face of the planet. Amen? That our relationship with God is not dependent upon what we do to earn our way to him, but what God has done for us in the person and work of Christ. That he lived perfectly, that he died in our place, that we can be restored to God, not because of our own merit, but because of the gift of grace. This is the gospel, church. This is the best news on the face of the planet. Do you believe that? And 
we know from Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who hear. Like the gospel is powerful, powerful enough to take people who were once alcoholics into people that are now born again Christians worshiping on Sunday. People who were once Christian killers, the apostle Paul, into church planters. This is the gospel. Nobody is too far gone. Nobody can out the grace of God. Do we believe that? I think fundamentally we say, yes. Like we've seen it be true throughout history. But as we start to make it a little bit more close to home, we actually do struggle with this. Like, do we believe that the gospel is powerful? Do we believe that the gospel is the best news on the face of the planet? Do we believe that nobody can out the grace of God, including our wayward son, including our angry parent, our selfish spouse, our wealthy boss who's indulging in the world, all of the good and moral people you know that don't think they need a savior. And yes, the more than three billion people on the other side of the world, do we believe that the gospel is good for them and powerful for them? Do we believe that people like that are actually ready to repent? We ought to, right? Jesus gives this promise, the harvest is plentiful. Why wouldn't we believe that? Well, it's because maybe you've walked alongside them. You've seen their life. Maybe you have been trying to minister to them for weeks, months, or even years, and now you're checked out. If you're there, I've been there. And we're not the only ones who have been there. I brought up the Apostle Paul. As he was doing ministry in the city of Corinth, he was filled with doubt and fear. I mean, he's in a city that's known as kind of like the ancient Vegas of the world, known for their pleasure industry, like prostitution is everywhere. There's parties all the time. People are overindulging. People are stealing. It's just sin city. Paul is trying to do ministry in this city, and even the religious elite are kicking him out of the synagogue and trying to shut him up. He had to be asking, really? Can the gospel really go forward in Corinth? Like these people? I don't know, God. And the good news is, the Lord speaks to him in his fear in Acts chapter 18. The word of God says this, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Get this, this phrase, For I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. That is incredible news. As Paul continues to do ministry in Corinth, that he's saying, there are so many here in Corinth that belong to me and they just don't know it yet. Keep going. Keep preaching. Keep doing ministry. And Veritas, I have to tell you, there are many in this city who belong to Jesus. There are many in Urbana who belong to Jesus. Centerpoint, Walker, Brandon, Vinton, you name it. There are many people in the cities and counties and places that you live that belong to Jesus. They just don't know it yet. And God is here to reassure you that this is not over. 
The harvest is plentiful. The gospel is still good and is still powerful. God wants to save these people and they're eager to repent. And here's what Jesus tells the disciples to do. Here's what he tells us to do. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is profound. (laughs) When I hear about this reality, like the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are a few, I'm like, you're right. Let's go be laborers. Like, let's work. Let's do it. I'm a doer. I want to go like push back the gates of hell. Like, come on, let's go get into the harvest. And that's not what Jesus first says. He doesn't say the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, go be a laborer. Go get in your city. No, what does he say? Therefore, pray. Therefore, pray. It can seem almost like counterproductive. It's like, really? Like, pray? Slow down? Pray? That's challenged me before, but more recently I've been challenged by this reality. Luke 10 I've set an alarm on my phone for 10.02 to the point that I pray it pretty consistently. But I think I've still been disobedient because I've missed one word in this verse. Like when my alarm goes off, I can, I can get myself to say, okay, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up more labors. Do you notice the word I missed? Earnestly. The call is not just to pray, but to pray earnestly. And you might be thinking, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> and I'm with you, right? I looked up other translations. One word I saw for it was beseech. And I'm like, I have no idea what beseech means. Let's go back to earnestly. We're a little bit closer there. And then I had a little bit of help. Uh, pray earnestly could actually be translated beg. Or beg with passion. And that's missing ingredient number two. Not just that God wants to save people, but missing ingredient number two, we need to have faith that God is willing to use our passionate prayers. Our passionate prayers. He's willing to take the passionate prayers of his people to help accomplish the reality there are lost people who will repent. What comes to mind for you when you hear the word beg or beg with passion? I have three little kids So it's really easy for me to think about my kids. My kids know how to beg, specifically when it comes to food or the dinner table or dessert. And they know better than to ask dad. I don't share my food. I don't share nicely. But my wife, a little more gracious, you know, they'll go to Ellie and they'll say, Mom, I want what you have. And, you know, they know how to ask with passion. One way we see that is they ask with emotion. They ask with emotion. And it's not always the emotion that I would choose. Uh, sometimes that's tantrums and fits and crying just so that they can get a bite of ice cream. But they want the ice cream, don't they? And they want it now. Like, they will not stop. And then you can even, like, say, hey, you're not going to get it that way, throwing a tantrum. And now the emotion is the other way. I'm so sorry, Mommy. You know, hugs and kisses and cuddles and whatever it takes to get the food and get it now. And church, there is a place for this type of passionate prayer in the life of a Christian. This emotional asking. But we often don't slow down enough to get ourselves to a place to feel 
a deep enough emotion to pray with that kind of passion. I mean, surrounding this verse, there's a couple actual ingredients that can help us become a more emotionally filled and fervent praying people. The first is compassion. In a companion text to this in Matthew 9, Jesus looks out at this crowd that he's about to send his disciples into, and it says this, Matthew 9, 36, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus slowed down enough to look at the lost people around him and say, it's not just that they're making a foolish decision. It's not just that they're getting it wrong. No, they are harassed and helpless. They are spiritually blind. They have no ability to save themselves. They are on the path to destruction, and they do not have help. And this broke Jesus' heart. Have we slowed down enough to look at lost people and say, wow, they are on a path to destruction and they have no help apart from the grace of God? If so, I think we'd pray with more emotion. But also, we have to acknowledge this reality that when Jesus' disciples come back from doing this ministry, he fills them with a posture of gratitude. So Jesus' disciples go into the cities that Jesus has sent them. They come back. They've seen God do amazing things like healing diseases and casting out demons. People are repenting all over the place. And Jesus tells them this, Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's saying, okay, do you acknowledge Not just that there are lost people out there on a fast track to condemnation. Do you recognize that that was your story too? And it would still be your story if not for the grace of God? Like, there are people committing right now sins that will send them to hell. Sins that you maybe have committed or currently could still be committing... And your end is not destruction, but glory because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you recognize that? Are you grateful? Like, this leads us to be a people that ask with emotion. And I can think of two examples in the scriptures of men who did this, and they did it really well. The first is Moses. In Exodus 32, Moses has had this incredible encounter with God only to march down a mountain and see his people worshiping a golden calf. And he is undone. He cannot believe that God would just reveal himself to him in such a powerful way. And then he'd march down the mountain and see these people just chasing after a lifeless idol. He is so wrecked that this is what Moses prays. He essentially says to God, please forgive them or blot my name out of the book. Whoa. Whoa. Like, forgive them or get rid of me for eternity. He's praying with emotion. And then you see Paul do this in Romans 9 and 10. Romans 10, 1, Paul is talking about Israel, his people, and he says, man, it is my heart's desire, it is my prayer, God, that... You would save these people. He's talking about Israel. But at the beginning of Romans 9, it's not just that he's praying for their salvation a little bit. He says, I would wish myself accursed or cut off from Christ for their sake. 
do you think these guys had emotion? Yeah, they're wishing themselves dead eternally if God would not save these people. They're filled with emotion. And we should get ourselves there. But let's also acknowledge that praying is not always an emotional experience. And that doesn't necessarily mean we lack passion. It might, but... Just because you don't have this emotional high every time you get on your knees in the morning doesn't necessarily mean you're not praying with passion. I mean, one of the ways that I see passion flesh itself out in life is people who do things consistently. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. I think about the fitness industry and people that are passionate about fitness or training for an Ironman, anything like that. Like, if they're passionate about it, you know what they're going to do? They're going to do the right thing even on days they don't want to. They're going to eat the right meal even when it's hard. They're going to go train even when they want to hit snooze because they're passionate about it. And as I've wrestled through what does passion look like in prayer— I've, I've thought of it, maybe passion looks more like a diet and exercise regimen than it does going to a country concert. Here's what I mean when I say that. I have enough friends, because we live in Iowa, who think that they're country fans. They're not, right? But Luke Bryan's coming to town, and here's what they're going to do. They're going to go buy cowboy boots, because now all of a sudden they're country fans, and they're going to buy a plaid shirt so they can fit in. And all of a sudden, you might think, they're really passionate about country music. And it's like, no, they're not. They wanted to fit in with the crowd. Anybody can go buy cowboy boots or a plaid shirt for a one-time event. And I will say, any of us, if we're honest, can pray on a, on a whim, one time, with a ton of passion. Maybe you've done that in a point of helplessness that you've just cried out to God, you are at the end of yourself. Any of us can do that one time. But maybe passion looks less like emotional asking and more like endless asking. Kids know how to do this too. (laughs) I think about Disney World. Like kids that want to go to Disney World, you know how they frequently end up getting there? It's not because their parents actually believe it's the happiest place on earth. It's not, by the way. If you haven't been, it's not that happy. No, kids end up going to Disney World because they ask day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, until finally their parents are like, let's go to Disney, right? They unwrap the gifts for Christmas and it's plane tickets. It's like, we're going to Disney World. Kids will ask day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, because they know what they want and they're less concerned about the timeline. And maybe that should be a mark of how we pray for lost people. Like, God, I don't care if you save them today. That would be great. But please help them see their need for salvation. Show them the beauty of his Savior. And don't put a timestamp on it. Just pray it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. This is actually a model of prayer that Jesus lays out for us as he continues in his ministry. Luke 11 and Luke 18, there's two stories that Jesus tells about persistent prayer. Luke 11 is a guy going to his neighbor who needs bread. He is a guest in town and he needs food. And so he goes and he knocks on the door, he knocks on the door. It's late at night and the neighbor wants him to go away, but he just keeps knocking and finally 
This guy gets whatever he wants. The neighbor's like, hey, just take the food. Get away, right? And then Luke 18, there's a persistent widow. She has had injustice done to her. And she goes to plead a case to this judge. She pleads for justice. Give me justice. Give me justice. And finally, finally, he gives her the justice she deserves. Because she keeps asking. In Luke 18.1, Jesus actually, it says Jesus tells them this parable so that they would always pray and not lose heart. This is meant to be a model of how we pray with passion, is that we would pray with persistence. That we would ask day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, God, would you save my sister? Would you save my dad? Would you save my neighbor, my cousin, my classmate? Day after day, week after week. And here's what's true, Veritas. There are lost people that are eager to repent if God's people would begin to earnestly pray. Both of those realities are true. Those are the missing ingredients. So you could say it this way. God wants to save sinners and is willing to use our passionate prayers. God wants to save sinners. That's evident. Look at your own story. And he's willing to use our passionate prayers. It's a sweet invitation into kingdom work that we can pray for lost people and that God might use those prayers to help lead people to repentance. And so, three application points for us today. They kind of build on each other. The first is we have to acknowledge God's power. I mean, that's part of why this starts with pray. We pray to the Lord of the harvest. He is the only one who has the ability to change a human heart. He alone has the power to save We cannot intellectually lead people to salvation. No, God has to give them a new heart. By the power of the Spirit, people have to come to the knowledge and understanding of saving grace. We have to acknowledge that it's God's power, not our own, that postures us to pray. The second is this. We have to identify a person. That shouldn't be hard. Even as I kind of introduced This sermon, I guarantee you, you had one, two, four, five names come to mind of people in your life that don't know Jesus. And I want to give you an additional challenge, all right? I think sometimes it's easy, easier to pray for lost people that are most proximate to us. It should be that way, but I don't want us to lose sight of lost people on the other side of the globe. And so under identify a person, I would also love to just challenge you to identify a people group. Identify a people group. Maybe that's you begin to pray more fervently for our missionaries in Taiwan, our missionaries in Thailand, relationships with local pastors in Wuhan, China. Maybe God is asking you not just to pray for your friend or your family member, but people on the other side of the globe. Would you identify those people and those people groups. And then lastly, would we be a church that's marked by asking with passion? Maybe it's emotional. Like on the days we can slow down and really practice compassion and gratitude, we would be filled with emotion and we would pray that way. But would our passion also just be seen in our persistence? That we just knock on the door of heaven every day, asking for God to do the same thing again in other people. 
And there's an author of the 19th century by the name of E.M. Bounds, and he wrote many books on prayer. One quote that I want to just share with you today from his book, Power Through Prayer, E.M. Bounds writes, Talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. He will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men. Ian Bounds is saying, hey, you want to go share the gospel with people? Great, you should do that. But make sure you're talking to God about those people too. Right? Talk to God for men and then, yes, go talk to men about God. And there was a guy doing ministry, E.M. Bounds Day and Age, by the name of D.L. Moody. How many of you have heard of D.L. Moody? He's pretty well known. He traveled the world. He preached to crowds as large as 30,000 people. Very well known, but maybe you haven't heard this story before. D.L. Moody was actually known for, during his adult life, carrying around a list in his pocket of 100 names of people he knew that didn't know Jesus. A hundred names. And he kept it on him because he wanted to pray consistently and persistently for these 100 people by name. He wanted to pray for their salvation. And the story goes that by the time D.L. Moody dies, 96 of the 100 had repented and believed. 96? Whoa! That makes me feel really small, by the way, when I think about my prayer life. 96 of the 100 had repented and believed, but the story gets even better. D.L. Moody's funeral. They have this memorial service. The last four remaining names were there in attendance and were so moved by the memorial service that each of them independently put their faith in Jesus. What? 100 out of 100 names that D.L. Moody had persistently prayed for. Four of them happened after he died. But does prayer work, church? Clearly, it does. It does, and now we are getting swept up. Maybe it's not a hundred names for you. Maybe it's one. Great. But what would happen if five, ten, fifty, five thousand years from now, we just acknowledge that the names that were written down this morning are worshiping Jesus? Are worshiping Jesus? And do you know how God partially ordained that to happen? The prayers were about to pray. The prayers were about to pray. This week, this month, this year, this decade, this lifetime. And most of these people will never even know that we've prayed for them. That's a good thing too, right? (laughs) That their salvation could be riding on the back of a faithful prayer life of a church in Urbana, Iowa. And we don't want the glory anyways. Right? People won't stand in heaven one day and say, Oh, I'm so glad Veritas Urbana prayed for me. No, they're going to say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. (laughs) All glory be to Him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, You are the Lord of the harvest. Uh, You alone save. We've seen that so clearly in our own lives, God, that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of our work, so that we cannot boast in ourselves, but that we have to boast in you. Thank you that you have many in this city, in this region, in our counties, and in our state, and in this world, who really are eager to repent, God, and 
one of the sweetest invitations that I know I personally have neglected is that you invite us to participate by praying to you. And so we do that today. Uh, we pray for lost people in our lives, friends and family, coworkers and classmates and neighbors, uh, people that are separated from you, people that are lacking the satisfaction that you offer and the eternal life that you give, not just life forever, but life that is filled with flourishing. God, we pray that you would save them. Save them soon. Save them even today. But God, also help us to be a people that pray with persistence. Bring these names to mind frequently. Use something as simple as an alarm clock on our phone to remind us when we are prone to forget. And God, we trust that you are faithful, that you will use the passionate prayers of your people, and that you will save many, and that you will get the glory, honor, and praise that you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.